a special welcome if anyone's arrived since we began the meeting. And if you have a Bible, um, we are going to be looking at the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible. And we are near the end of the book of Revelation itself, and we're in chapter 20. It's been part of a series over some weeks and months now, looking at the whole book of Revelation, and now we are arriving. We're going to read, a, uh, compared to most sections we've been off each week, we're going to look at a relatively short passage, um, Revelation 20, starting verse 11. Let's read then. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of fire of the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Okay, we are returning to the throne. We're going to spend some time this morning before the throne, the great white throne. In verse 11, if you have been with us um, over the weeks and months, you will remember uh, quite some time ago now, we were in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, and we saw the throne of God there and someone sitting on it. It's kind of described in a... In a uh, a kind of slightly elusive way. We don't get loads of detail because the one who's seated on the throne is the Lord God Almighty who's majestic over all things. And so we almost just get this, this tantalizing glimpse of God in all his resplendent glory and majesty. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. In between chapters 4 and chapter 20, we've seen all these visions of the whole of AD history, since Jesus' death and his resurrection and ascension, all the way through now to this moment where we're poised to consider the new heaven and a new earth, which God is about to unveil. The God who is on the throne is bringing all things to this conclusion. He's bringing about a new heavens and a new earth. What would the world be like? What would the perfect world be like? The world that we would, we'd all like to live in. Revelation 21, which we'll go on to, gives amazing descriptions of this new heaven and new earth that God is going to bring um, into being. And we, we see a few things. We'll, we'll look at them more on, uh, on another occasion. But in chapter 21, verse 4, we, we find out what, what's this new world? What's this new heaven and new earth like? Where it says there in verse 4, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And then look on just to the very next verse in verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything 
new. When we get to chapter 21, we're going to consider this in in much more detail, but just to, to see now, what's this new order? What's this new heaven and new earth like? Well, there's no need for tears. There is no more death. We see that in the end of chapter 20. Death itself is uh, is judged and defeated and destroyed. Um, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things is, is made away. I'm making everything new. Nothing will decay. Nothing will deteriorate. Nothing will run out. Nothing will break. Nothing will fail. Nothing will need to be thrown away and replaced including our own bodies. Nothing will give up. Nothing will suffer. No one will suffer. This is an amazing uh, vision that we have to look forward to. And, uh, yeah, we will enjoy looking at it right now uh, a little bit later on. But the God who is on the throne is restoring creation. What is he about? What is God's plan? What's his purpose? To what point is he bringing all of history? He's bringing it to this point right here. We don't yet see it yet. Because quite honestly, if we look around right now, we we don't see the world that we all want. We don't see the world that would would truly satisfy or is truly good. And Revelation pulls no punches. It kind of describes exactly what's going on in this world. And God is bringing everything to this glorious conclusion. But first, as we've seen in these last few chapters of, of Revelation, he's having to deal with and put in its place everything that threatens, everything that would oppose, everything that would pollute, everything that wouldn't belong in this new order, this new creation. And because it's the book of Revelation, it uses this vivid and dramatic language. And so we've seen in recent chapters that God is, has been bringing judgment so actually, this does not belong in this future kingdom. And so he brings judgment. He brings judgment against Babylon. Okay, well, what's Babylon? Well, human civilization independent of God. We want to do things our way. We don't want to go your way, God. And the whole, whole society develops around wanting to do things our own way. God brings judgment. Uh, God brings judgment on the beast. And the false prophet. Again, we might not regularly think in those kind of terms, but we might think, well, what's wrong with the world? Well, yeah, society often demonstrates what's wrong with the world. Well, okay, the beast, where, where are we going with that? There's plenty more that can be said than this, but the beast representing institutions, the state, the system. What's wrong with the world? The system. The system's against you. The system brings injustice. Uh, If you're kind of on the right track, maybe you can play the system uh, to kind of get around, um, to get around it and get what you want. But the the system wields power, which favors some people, but treads down others and looks to give people false hope, false security. You don't need Jesus, would be what the beast was saying. You don't need Jesus. What you need is what I have to offer. That's the, the, that's the essence of the beast or the Antichrist that we've looked before. Uh, the false prophet is the one who kind of says, yeah, look to the beast, look to the beast. He's the one you need. He's the one who will save you. And uh, we can think, well, okay, uh, what's wrong with the world for us today? We might not know kind of individuals who are very much definitely 
doing that, but the media, technology, often presenting to us, this is what you need, this is what will satisfy, this is what will, uh, this is what will save you. Not, not Jesus, but something else. And so God is bringing judgment. Then we saw last time, God bringing judgment against the dragon. Uh, in, in chapter 20, he kind of gets uh, a number of titles given to him. Uh, in, in chapter 20 and verse 2, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. This, this imposter, this accuser, this slanderer, this deceiver, the originator of all things that are evil. Standing behind and influencing Babylon, the beast and the false prophets and God brings judgment on all of them because they do not belong they cannot be part of God's new creation God's kingdom and so he brings judgment now what the the verses that we've just looked at add an extra layer what's wrong with the world well we could say yes society There are things that are wrong with society. What's wrong with the world? Well, there's the system that treads people down. What's wrong with the world? Uh, Media and technology and all the rest of it. Um, What's wrong with the world? Depending on your worldview, Satan himself. Okay, we, we can kind of agree with those things. The pain of looking at these last few verses of chapter 20 is it adds this extra layer. What's wrong with the world? Me. What's God got to deal with? He's got to deal with me. And so we see this scene before the great white throne and the books were open. God is seated and a record is opened, a, a book, or more than one book, books and books and books. The records, if you like, of everything that's happened throughout history and in there will be chapter after chapter after chapter on Dan Mayton ah God's got to deal with me this includes everyone the books were opened judgment comes and it includes everyone we see in verse 12 that includes the great and small Um, we know later on that uh, the dead were judged according to what they had done in the records of the book. And uh, each person was judged according to what he had done. Each person, everyone included. That includes the person who knows Jesus. That includes the person who doesn't know Jesus. If you look in Hebrews and chapter 9, uh, we're told there, we'll probably read from verse 26. Uh, I think, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as a man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So verse 27 we see there, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That includes me. That includes you. 
That includes everyone who has lived. And the Bible gives us wonderf- wonderfully sobering um, encouragements like James 3 verse 1. Judgment is not just about those who don't know Jesus. It's coming to those who do. Not only is it coming to those who do. James 3 tells us, Not many of you, of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. This morning, you have the best seat in the house on account of that verse. Judgment. The books are opened. And Dan Mayton, it's your turn. Everyone's included. Everything is included. We're judged according to what they, uh, they've done as recorded in the books. Verse 12. Nothing is missed out. Again, uh, 2 Corinthians and chapter 5 uh, brings that home as well, where Paul is writing there. And he says, um, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, there's an element of good news there, isn't there? Because actually what we're seeing there is judgment is according to what's in the books, what's actually happened. Things whilst done in the body, what good or bad it's totally fair totally just nothing is missed out nothing escapes the attention of the one who is seated on the throne that means every deed everything that I have done it means every word Jesus was saying to the disciples on one occasion um, God will bring judgment for, for every careless word careless words are included things that have been said quietly and in private or tucked away will kind of be brought out into the open and uh, will be revealed he'll bring judgment on the secrets of men's hearts and women's hearts Uh, so every word every thought every deed every desire that's been tucked away that maybe even hasn't been said out loud every motive i wonder if you ever watched on saturday night uh, this is your life um, obviously, it's not on now, but um, I think it was Michael Aspel, and before that, someone else, Eamon Andrews, um, would would show up. I think they used to do it totally unexpectedly, but after a while, they they started to actually speak to the person. They they find a celebrity or the dignitary or the the person of interest, and they say, "This is your life." Da, 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 da. The music plays. You're lucky. You get, um, the music plays. They go, oh, oh, you shouldn't have. Is this for me? Oh, you should have. You know, no, you, you shouldn't have. And the big red book is there, and he opens it out, and it's like, it's the, the selected highlights, successes, and glorious achievements of the person concerned. This is your life. Oh, no, it isn't. It's a few bits that have been cherry-picked. <laughs> To try and give us impression, you're a really nice person, I'm sure, on the whole. Obviously, there's, there's plenty of good things that are true that can be said. Um, I would like that. I, w- I would quite like that to happen. Here's the selected highlights. Da, 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 da. I walk in, and here are the good bits. Here's what you've done uh, that were, had the right motive, that were, were, were good words, uh, your thoughts were good and what happened was demonstrating what I'm like. So this is, this is good. God says, this is brilliant. 
However, uh, these books are a little bit different. Nothing is missed out. This is not the selected highlights. This is my whole life. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. That's the scene. Before we get to chapter 21, we've got to rest here for just at least one week. We get to this point. Everyone is included. Everything is included. And there's nowhere to hide. Earth and sky fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. That could mean in some literal way that at this point, John is seeing in this vision, there's coming a point where the whole of this created order that we now know and can see and touch disappears. It could be that that's a, a, a way of expressing all attention is on the one who's on the throne. Everything else pales into insignificance. I think at the very least it goes to show that while we are there standing before the throne, it's just us and him. And there's nowhere else to hide. When Adam and Eve, back in the garden, back where relationship had been perfect, back where creation was completely as it should be, and they enjoyed a world as God intended it to be, what happened? They sinned. They disobeyed. It wasn't murder. It was eating a fruit from a tree they were told not to. What did they do after that? They realized what they had done. They realized their shame and their nakedness. They attempted to hide. God walks in the garden and calls to them. Where are you? Why are you hiding? Obviously God knows exactly where they were. But they at least for a moment could fool themselves. We can cover ourselves. We, we can hide this up. We can, we can tuck ourselves and what we've done away. On this day, in this vision of a day to come in the future, earth and sky fled from his presence. Nowhere to hide. Now, this is not a comfortable subject, let's be perfectly honest. And it could therefore occur, but it's, surely, it, it's not it's not really right to judge, isn't it? I'm sure Jesus talked about you know, not being, uh, you know, not judging other people, uh, not being judgmental. It's it's not good to judge, and we we can kind of take that and think that's just universally, completely, and utterly true. So, the Book of Revelation might say this, but I'm just not sure I go along with it. It's not very enlightened. It's written ages ago, AD 95, for goodness sake, or thereabouts. So, okay, that's a vision that John had, and he wrote it down, and it's here for our benefit, but I'm not sure it washes today. It's not right to judge. And if we mean it's not right to jump to a premature conclusion before all the facts are known, I think that's fair enough. But... Actually, what is the world in which we all want to live? The world in which we would like to live is a place of justice. So when the shoe's on the other foot, we can all think of things where we're thinking, how long? How long, O oh Lord, 
until I get justice, until there's justice done. Why is it that people get away with doing stuff that isn't right? And actually, that's probably the concern of many people who were the first to read the book of Revelation. Their concern was probably not, how can a loving God bring judgment? Their concern was probably, how can a holy God, who's also loving, not bring justice in this world? And so you get the prophet Habakkuk say, how long, O Lord, how long are you going to make me look on injustice? How long am I going to have to see a world that's increasingly filled with violence? How long, even amongst God's people, are we going to have to see this happen? And earlier in the book of Revelation, in a previous vision, we see uh, the souls of those who've been killed for their faith in Jesus underneath the altar that's in heaven. And they, they too are calling out, we've been killed for declaring your name, Lord Jesus. We have lost our lives because we wouldn't Throw away our faith. How long, O oh Lord, until there's justice? So we do want a world with justice in it. We do want a world where wrongs are righted. And what is God about? The God who's on the throne is bringing things to that point. Sometimes in the here and now we can be thinking, how long, O oh God? How long? And the Lord might say to us, you're just going to have to wait. I am at work. I am bringing this day about. I will bring justice. But for now, patience. But he is, he is doing it. So we might think that. I wonder, how many girl guides are in the room? Or did you used to be a girl guide? Who can remember giving the, uh, saying the oath? This week that has been changed. You, you, you promised probably, <laughs> just a couple of tentative hands went up. Um, you promised to, to love God or, or, or do your duty to God. Uh, this week in the news has been that the, uh, the oath, um, has been changed that girl guides now need to make. And I'm, I'm not going to comment overly much, but it's interestingly, it's interesting what it's been changed to. I promise is it like that? Or like that? Or like that? I promise, it says now, to be true to myself. I promise to be true. What does it mean? What does it mean? I really, I've been grappling with that this week. I think it, <laughs> not that I've, <laughs> I want to be a guide. I want to join. <laughs> um, <laughs> what does it mean? I think in some ways, to be, the, the promise to be true to myself, on the face of it, means this. I, I kind of promise to be consistent with what I think and what I believe. I promise to be honest about, about who I am. It's, it, we, it's flaky. It's, it's wonderfully fluffy. But I, I think that's what it's getting at. And again, I, I think that's, that's no bad thing if it's saying that. I'd kind of say, well, if that's the promise, why not just say, I promise to be honest um, and walk, you know, live a life of integrity. But it doesn't. It says, I promise to be true to myself. And um, 
I think, I wonder, our issue is not so much no one should judge. You can't judge, no one should judge. I think what we want, and maybe this is how we would like the world to be, I get to be my own judge. Because if I get to the end of my life, so yet my greatest duty, my greatest obligation, the greatest principle by which I've lived my life was to be true to myself. Who can say that I have been true to myself or I haven't been true to myself? Me. Only me. So at the end of time, I get to look back over all the books and I get to say, look, I've been true. I've been true to myself. I've been consistent. I wonder if in the world that we kind of want, but maybe we don't want to admit it, we just get to be our own judge. Or we, we get to be the judge. So it's not so much I don't think anyone should judge. It's actually I want to reserve the rights to be able to judge everything for myself, even my own life. I'm only really accountable to myself. What I've just got to make sure is I'm, I'm kind of consistent. Well, in this passage, who is seated on the throne? Who's the one in the position to judge? It's God. It's not me. In fact, it would just be ludicrous if it was me, if the books were opened and it was me sat there and I got to say. In primary school, in class five, which I think was year three, so I think I was seven or maybe eight or something around that, um, my teacher gave us a maths test every week. Bad news. 20 questions. 20 questions that she, she just read out and then quickly moved on to the next one. If you fell behind, that was it. Guess what I did? I fell behind. Uh, 20 questions. I, I think, looking back now, I'm reasonably hopeful that I would get 20 out of 20. But at the time, I think I was possibly daydreaming at the moment where she kind of explained the nature of these particular questions. So it's not just that I couldn't work out the answers. I didn't understand the question that she was posing. There was no way I could answer it. Question one. Blank. Question two. Blank. Question three, yada, 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 equals (laughs) totally blank. And so my, maybe I tried to muster up, muster up a few answers to go down on this sheet of paper. These were not happy days, I can tell you. Um, but then I got thrown a lifeline. She must have been mad. What teacher in their right mind would say this? Mark your own work. The answer to question one is five. Oh! <laughs> Tick! The answer to question two is twelve to the power of fifty-three. No, uh, it was something, fifteen. Yeah, I see that now. Okay, class. Please would you tell me what your score was? I looked at my still largely blank piece of paper. 17. Because I, I didn't... 17 out of 20. 
miss because I didn't want to look too obvious. And so the next week it was 18, and maybe, you know, some weeks I went for 16. I'm not terribly proud of this, but I thought at least it's a bit of a funny in the midst of talking about the judgment of God. So I throw it in. But it kind of goes to show we don't make good judges of our own work. It wasn't really an accurate picture of my mathematical ability at that point in time, was it? Really? Or maybe I could have gone for a slightly different approach. Um, maybe I should have been true to myself. That's not the answer, miss. And just made another one up. The answer is 11. It's not 10. 5 add 5 is 11, miss. And I, I noticed, you know, there's a murmurings around the classroom. Who's with me? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm going for 11 too. And I get, I get consensus. I get people rallying to my cause. Five per five is 11. And my, 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 my Welsh teacher, uh, who used to sometimes shout at us in Welsh, those are the only Welsh words I know. I'm not going to say them just in case they're swear words. Um, <laughs> we'd have her. We could just say, we could wing it. We could say, as a class, we've decided because we've established a consensus together. Together as the class, we get to judge. We get to say, in your face, Miss Amos, you're wrong. Actually, she was right. I was too timid to do that, and I would have been ashamed of doing that too. But when I'm not a good judge of my own work. I'm not a good judge of my own life. We are not a good judge of my life or our life. We're not a good judge of our own work. How would that work? How would justice ever come about? How would ever wrongs be righted? Everything would just get fudged. Everything would just get diluted. And then what? We, we enter into a new creation with God with all this fudge, fluff, and pollution. It's clearly not how it's supposed to be. But it does go to show, I think, that on some occasions at least, I want to be on the throne. I want to decide. I want to judge. And the essence of sin is this. God is on the throne. I am not. But I want to substitute myself and come into his place. He is holy, holy, holy. Perfect, majestic and glorious. He alone, as we saw in chapter 5, he alone is worthy to sit on the throne. He alone is worthy of all worship. We've been kind of considering that massive shorthand for the whole book of Revelation. God wins, we worship. That's the appropriate way round. God's on the throne and we worship, but we want to turn it the other way round. We want to be on the throne and we want God to be accountable to us. Really, many times. Sin is deceptive. We could have been walking with God for years, and yet there can still be that tendency. Sin wants to deceive. The imposter, the deceiver, wants to come alongside and say, did God really say, keep the marriage bed pure? Did God really say, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Did God really say these things? And we, we kind of massage those thoughts for a while and, and we, we're not 
kind of going into outright rebellion, but we want to switch things around. We want to be able to decide. I'm going to choose my sexual ethic. I'm going to choose what personality. I'm, I'm going to be true. I want to be true to myself. This is the personality I have. And so I'm just going to let my temper out. Or I'm just going to react in this way. Or it's just who I am. And I'll be the judge of whether it's an appropriate way for me to live. I get to choose. And I want to be on the throne. And therefore, God, you, you have to move aside. Give me room. In fact, step off for now. Actually, just step off. It's me. I, I want to sit there. Sin has, it's deceitful. And it's, it's tempting. And it wants to bring, it wants to bring doubts into our mind. It wants to, it wants us to question that God is good. It wants us to question whether God is worthy. It wants us to question whether God is just, whether God is in control, whether, whether God is rightly on the throne. It just wants to, maybe not like a full frontal whack, but maybe just subtly sprinkle in. And we, yeah, that's okay. We can roll with this. We'll, we'll just beat our own path a little bit and do our own thing. What these books reveal, the books were opened. I think what those books are telling us about is that God is just. The record books show God's unfailing memory. And therefore, those books that are opened before the throne reveal one thing. No one can stand before the throne of God on the basis of what's written in those books. When all is said and done, when all the facts are in, where everything's written out, the things in my life that have been hidden and tucked away, the things in my life that have maybe been really obvious, the things in my life that have had some merit to them, the things in my life that have just been twisted with pride and arrogance and self-centeredness, when they're all there, what will the conclusion be? No one can stand before a holy God. It brings us to that crisis point. No one can join this new creation on account of what's written in this book. Yes, it's totally fair. Because it's totally fair, the standards don't shift. And that is a problem. But God is just. God will not allow himself to be dethroned. He will not allow himself to be pressured into diluting. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I can see why you did it. Um, it really hurt other people and it kind of led you off on an unhelpful tack. But I can see your thinking and, okay, I'm going to overlook it. God can't overlook it. God can't just bring us in on a bit of a wink and a nudge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you, come on in then. No, it's, it can't be on that basis. The books were opened. Judgment comes. However, another book was opened. We have the books that reveal the justice of God, the holiness of God, the unfailing memory of God. But another book was opened, which is, we find out in verse 12, the book 
of life. The book of life. This has a more promising ring about it, we might think. And rightly so. Because for those whose names are in this book, that's all that needs to be in, a name. For those whose names are in this book, they are welcomed in to God's new creation. And no name can be blotted out of this book. Once a name goes in the book of life, that's where it stays. We, 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 uh, we see that um, in, in Revelation chapter 3, right at the beginning of the book, um, in the, the, the letter to the church in Sardis. And in verse 5, Jesus writes to that church, and he says, He who overcomes, he who stays true to faith in Jesus, will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. The books are open. Everything is laid bare. Another book is opened, and there are names. And then those names are acknowledged before the Father. No, this one, there's something else to consider in this person's case. What else do we know about this book? The book of life. In chapter 21 and verse 27 of Revelation, so into the next vision really, um, we're told there that nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who does this book belong to? It belongs to the Lamb. belongs to Jesus. It belongs to the Son of God. Well, what's this book to do with? We, we came across this book also in chapter 13 and verse 8, where we're told there, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb, who was slain from the creation of the world. The book of, La- the book of life belongs to the Lamb, it belongs to Jesus. And then it's closely associated with what you can see at the end of that verse, the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Names being in this book have something to do then with the lamb being slain. So here we are before the throne of God. Right back in Revelation 4 and 5, again we were before the throne of God. And you might actually recall from chapter 5, there was a crisis point in heaven. No one could be found who was worthy to open the scrolls, we were told, to kind of unveil and put into action all of God's plans for the whole of history up until the second coming of Christ. No one was found worthy. And John wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look inside it. But then, he's told, there is one, there's one who is worthy. Then I saw a lamb, Revelation 5 and verse 6. Then I I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And it goes on to describe this this song that is directed towards the Lamb. It says how those heavenly beings sang a new song in chapter 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because 
you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So the lamb is worthy because he was slain. What did being slain, what did dying as a sacrifice, what did it, what did it achieve? What did it do? Well, with his own blood, Jesus in dying was able then to, to purchase, as it were, to, to pay what was necessary in giving his own life to rescue us. See, the, the essence of sin is that we want to dethrone God. We want to take the place that only God is worthy to take. We want to sit in his place, nudge him off and dethrone him. I'll sit here, thank you very much. I'll be the judge of my own life. That's the essence of sin. What's the essence of God's salvation? Is there's a God who's on the throne of absolute holiness, absolute justice, who will not dilute any of his holy standards. Things that please him are good. Things that displease him are evil and sinful. There's no other explanation. That's the assessment. What does that God do? What has that God done? The God who is on the throne was willing to come down and take the place that only we deserve to be in. We want to be where he deserves to be. He willingly came and took the place that I deserve to be. And so the Son of God came. He made himself nothing book of Revelation uses, uses this language describing him as a lamb because lambs were often used as a, as a sacrifice, a substitute. The lamb would be sacrificed instead of the person for the sin that had been done. Jesus came and, and became the lamb, the lamb of God, who takes away our sin by taking our place, by taking our punishment. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So how do we respond or how have we responded? How will we respond to to this crisis point? The books were opened. Everything's laid bare. How is it then that we can stand? How is it then that we can enter? If it says nothing impure is there, how can I come in? How can I possibly be a part of God's new creation. Firstly, by recognizing our total need of what God has done. Acknowledging everything that might be written in the books. The books are opened. It's all true. It was all me. There's no excuse, really. I know what I've done. I know what I did, done, I did in class five as an eight-year-old, pretending to understand maths. I know who I am. I know other things that on this day I'm not telling you about. I know the recesses of my own heart. I know where I've slipped. I know my own guilt. And I recognize I can never... Add things into the book to cancel other things out of the book. It's all there. 
So I, I'm recognising I'm not going to be able to now live in such a way whereas I can just say to God on the final day, I'll just keep turning. There's a few more pages and if you get back to the appendix, you'll see the really good stuff. You'll even see the stuff I did once I had got, once I started to follow you. Look at all this. Look at what I can put you. Just, in fact, can I just rip those pages out? Look at this. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've achieved. Huh? Please. I did actually get my maths GCSE. I made it. So I slipped up then, but won't you look at what I've done now? I didn't take much maths much further than that, to be perfectly honest. Um, but that's what religion wants us to do. That's what we can think is the only way. That's what kills us, really, if we're in relationship with God. Because subtly, we've got an enemy who wants to encourage us to still think like that. Come on. Come on. Pull your socks up. Look holy. Look good. Say the right thing. And it's a, we can have a, a, a desperation. I've got a, yeah, earth and sky is going to flee away. Well, I've got to find some other cover, therefore. I've got to find something else that's going to cover up the stuff. I don't really want to talk about. So look at all this. Look how good I am. Look at what I've achieved. It's all what comes through out of a desperate attempt to try and earn God's favor when we are missing the point. There's another book. There's another book. So we're not trying to earn God's favor by adding lots of good stuff into the books. So the essence of salvation, God substituting himself for us. God sacrificing himself for me. God put himself in my place where only I deserve to be for the things that I have done whilst I've been in this body and he took the punishment. Our way in is to say, I understand there's no, there's no way in on the basis of what's written down. My record of life. The only way in is by me receiving what, what God has done. He stepped down. He took my place. The lamb was slain. I acknowledge that. I receive that. I accept that. And simply then, God has my name. Jesus has my name written down in the pages of the book of life. That's all. It's my, my, my name is there. It's not... It's not Dan Mayton, Asterix, Elder of City Church Sheffield, and uh, uh, reasonably good guy, and uh, GCSEs, A-levels, other stuff. Um, none of that's there. None of that gets me in. Nothing gets me in other than my name being there. My name is in the book. Everything else that happens is not us trying to earn our way in or keep our way in or try and kind of maybe maybe make our name a bit further up the list. 
It's, it's none of it. It's all totally by God's grace. The books were opened. Judgment comes. God is just. There's another book. The book of life. What does this reveal? God is merciful. God is gracious. The books showed God's unfailing memory of everything. The book of life shows God's unfailing mercy. And it's a, the God who is on the throne is merciful. I think even for disciples of Jesus, we can give thanks and rejoice in the wrong thing. Why don't you look with me at Luke chapter 10. Jesus has his band of disciples, men and women too, who are, who are following him. Jesus involves them on the earth in demonstrating and revealing what his kingdom is like. And Jesus in, in, in Luke 10 sends out 72 of his disciples to go into different towns and villages preaching and demonstrating and teaching the gospel. And they come back afterwards and they are buzzing. Why are they buzzing? Well, because they said, um, it says in Luke 10 verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. In other words, we're really stoked because we got to be involved in your kingdom, God. And it's wonderful to see your kingdom at work. But also, they submit to us. Look what, look what we've done. It's me. We, we've got some stuff to say. Get, get, that can go in the appendix, can't it? Surely, wonderful. They came back rejoicing that demons submitted to them. Well, yeah. They're members of the kingdom. Jesus' ambassadors. Demons submit to us in your name. Jesus reply. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. It's all true. They do submit to you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do not rejoice in what you think you have achieved in this life. In some respects, do not despair about the things in the previous pages of your book that you can now do nothing about. Do not rejoice in your successes. Do not rejoice in your ministry. Do not rejoice in what you have accomplished. Do not boast, I suppose we could say in other words. Don't shout from the rooftops what God has enabled me to do. Let your rejoicing be in this far more profound thing. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They're written where they cannot be blotted out. They are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a wonderful promise. Rejoice. Rejoice in this. Rejoice in the grace of God. Now the Bible also says, or Paul also writes, that we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him 
uh, in this body, before we get to glory, before we get to be with him forever, we make it our goal to please him. He's kind of saying, well, that's a deliberate choice, therefore, isn't it? I, I want to please God. It's an acknowledgement from this point. In, it's not as if by some wave of a magic wand, now everything I do in life will be good. Everything I do in life will be worthy. Everything I do, no matter what I do, God is pleased with what I do. It might not be if I lose my temper this afternoon, if I lie in a way that is less humorous than my math test. God's not pleased. God's not rejoicing in my sin. He's not rejoicing in things I may do in the future that don't reflect him. I need to make it my goal to please him. I need to to choose. That's the, that's the way I'm going. But I'm going to make sure that I'm rejoicing. See, if that I'm rejoicing in the right thing and that I'm treasuring the grace of God. We're stood here, this very final part of Revelation 20, concluding all of the visions that we've seen, chapter 6 onwards, all these different visions of AD history. We've got to this point, this point which is in some ways clearly is uncomfortable. God needs to deal with everything that doesn't belong in his new heaven and new earth. He deals with Babylon, deals with the beast, deals with a false prophet, deals with a dragon, and deals with me. And so we see in just the space of a few verses, God is just and God is merciful. God is holy and God is loving. God is angry with sin and he's patient. Paul puts it like this, consider the kindness and sternness of God. There's a sternness, there's a firmness, there's a, the standards haven't changed. I, God hasn't had a personality change from nasty, grumpy God to easygoing, relaxed, kind of it doesn't matter what you do, God. Both of those are just, uh, they're a misunderstanding. Who is, who is the one who sat on the throne? He's just and merciful. He's holy and he's loving. He's angry. He's patient. He's kind. He is stern. He won't allow us to dethrone him and take the place that only he deserves. But he was prepared as well to step down and take the place that only we deserve. Here is a God to give your life to. Here is a God to spend eternity with. It's, impo- it's possible sometimes that we want to, we can get preoccupied with either one. We could possibly feel like ranting and raving about him judging. Goodness me. But then miss out on actually receiving his mercy. Or it's possible to receive his mercy, but overlook the fact he still judges sin. He still wants us to live a life that's worthy. He still wants us to make it our aim to please him. 
He still wants us not to choose my way, my preference, my desire. But, oh God, continue to reveal and open my eyes to what your word reveals is your desire, is your way, is your will. All the time rejoicing that when we read chapter 21 and 22, if we've received Christ, if we've received this grace, then whatever has gone before, whatever those books contain, God has made it possible for, for us to belong, to be at home, and to be with him for eternity. Let's pray.